History is full of amazing stories and memorable people. But we don't care about them. No hits, deep tracks only. Some of the most influential people in the world have been completely overlooked or just plain forgotten. We're digging deep into the history books to bring you their stories. I'm Phil. And I'm Matt. We're not historians. We're just two guys who enjoy a great story and plenty of laughs. This is History's B-Side. Today's B-Siders are Hello Girls. I had a feeling that you saying this episode title, Hello Girls, would remind me of my favorite character, Super Matt. Oh God. (laughs) (laughs) I knew this I knew this was your was your connection. (laughs) For our listeners and probably a lot of our friends who maybe don't get that joke, I used to always refer to Matt as having an alter ego anytime he got out of a relationship that he would turn into Super Matt. Which was just the extra flirty version of Matt. I didn't <laughs> like, like. I didn't. I wasn't comfortable with being alone with myself. <laughs> <laughs> I had to put the energy somewhere. Not that Matt was ever like jumping around between different girls and stuff. Like you, you were always relationship Matt. But it, it would just be funny that after you got out of like a long relationship, you'd be like open to talking and hanging out with anyone (laughs) and you're like you're actually very confident in yourself and that was something that I always kind of admired about you because I am awkward with everyone but especially girls before I was dating my future wife (laughs) oh don't worry I was definitely awkward I'm fairly certain that my like success rate was low like below five (laughs) percent But, like, I just figured, why not talk? Like, you know, what's the worst that can happen? You have a conversation and they tell you to go away. (laughs) Like, Yeah, but, I mean, I think as, like, young men growing up in a society where we typically expect the the men to approach the women in a dating situation or prospective dating situation, like, we sat around at coffee shops or bars and had conversations about, you know, actually going up and talking to a girl and i feel like in our friend group you were the one who was always most likely to actually have the confidence to go do it and i know that you like actually did on a few occasions and i was always like i don't know that i would have done that yeah <laughs> i mean it helped that like Rita and i started dating pretty early on like we were dating for a while so i could always talk from the perspective of like I don't have to be that guy. Like I'm not the one that has to put myself out there, but right. some of our other friends that we hung out with, like we'd give them a hard time, but you were the one who was actually go confidently talk to someone. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe you saw uh, like the outer display, but I was definitely not confident as confident. I think as I made it seem like, I, I think a lot of me was intentionally making myself do that to, to try to get over the, anxiety and fear of you know approaching people approaching strangers and also of like getting rejected right like that's never fun but yeah i mean well i think that's a good like that's a good mindset to have too just getting yourself comfortable in social situations and also like being clear in our thoughts on this is just that you were obviously very respectful in the way that you, like you weren't creepy trying to go up to some girl at a bar and take advantage of her in that way. Like that's, that's maybe like a problem that we have in our society. Not maybe a problem. That is a problem that a lot of men have in the way that they approach and behave towards women. And 
that is certainly not what we're talking about. Like we're just talking about like self-confidence and yeah, being able to go up to someone and greet them for the first time, someone who you don't know. What I think that is for me, at least the fear of just like a blind approach to a stranger in a bar was more based in like fear that I would come across as creepy because I am cognizant of the way a lot of men act mm-hmm. towards women um, and less about me being worried about rejection. Cause like, like I said, even though rejection hurts and it's uncomfortable, it's like you get over it pretty quick. It's like whatever. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Especially from a stranger who you don't have to interact with beyond that point. Right. But I'm sure a question that you often asked in these we, I guess we should say few times that you actually did approach a stranger was asking for her phone number. Yes. I got a lot of fake ones. <laughs> that's <laughs> actually really? that's actually the worst. Yeah, when you like either message and they never respond, which could be a fake number or could just be them blowing you off. But the worst ones were like I would message them or call them and it would be like com- somebody completely different. Like, it'd be a guy. <laughs> I was like <laughs> All righty then. That's so awkward. Yeah. See, that's, I mean, that's actually kind of funny because it, while this whole like dating or approach to dating doesn't necessarily tie into today's episode, that giving the fake number would have been solved by us just living in the time period of today's episode because phone numbers weren't really a thing. You would have just needed to know her name and, you know, you could walk up to anyone and ask their name and it wouldn't be as weird as asking for their phone number, I feel like. Yeah. So I guess we can kind of dive into today's topic a little bit. And like I said, it doesn't really have anything to do with dating, but we are going to talk about phones and kind of a little bit the history of phones and how they were operated. And I want to give a shout out to one of our listeners and actually someone that I know outside of the podcast, uh, my friend Catherine, who recommended this topic to me quite a while ago. And I feel that now that we're in 2022 and recording more Histories B-Side episodes that I should probably start getting to the list of episodes that have been suggested to me. <laughs> so yeah. I'll try to I'll try to work some of those into my topics for the next couple weeks for sure. And I want to say, if you're listening to this and you have ideas for topics of lesser known people from history who kind of shaped the world we live in today, please, by all means, Email us, historiesbside at gmail.com, or reach out to us on one of our social media pages. Uh, most of them are at historiesbside. Because while we do have a list of topics that we want to dive into, it's kind of cool when people get the idea of you know what we're doing with this podcast and want to hear about stories. We'll, ha- we'll happily research them for you. You just got to send us what the topic is. Yeah, we're always looking for topics. <laughs> Desperately. Well, you, you less than me. I feel like you have a pretty good bank. You're even kind enough to share your bank with me in weeks past. It's dwindling down, though. Not too much. I mean, I have a lot of episodes ready to go, but I keep putting some of them off because I'm just like, I find a new topic that I really want to get into and I really want to research more. Yeah. Figured I should probably get this one out of the way because we had a listener who asked for it. Yeah. (laughs) So like I said, today's topic is going to center around sort of the history of phones, telephones, and then it'll get into like a specific group of operators behind the telephones. You know, of course, who invented the telephone, right? Or at least who we credit with inventing the telephone. I haven't yes. looked up to see if there's a history's B-sider that maybe did it first. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We should find out. But it's generally understood that the telephone was invented by a man named Alexander Graham Bell. And we're not going to talk about him because he's obviously very well known. 
But in April 1877, a man named George W. Coy attended a lecture by Alexander Graham Bell. And this Coy had experience in the telegraph business, so he sort of worked in communications like this. Hmm. And if any of our listeners are unsure what a telegraph is or how they work, check out our fourth episode on Jack Phillips, where we we <laughs> pretty thoroughly discuss it, I feel like. We're not... I think you did, you did a good job explaining that one. Yeah. <laughs> the two men made a deal to set up the first telephone exchange in the United States. And a telephone exchange was a central switchboard that allowed anyone with a telephone to call or be called by anyone else who had one. The phone that Bell originally invented was just one straight wire that was able to call two people at a very long distance. Mm -hmm. Um, By that, I don't mean like on the other side of the room, like literally miles as long as the cable could connect them. But it would just be down one direct line. This new telephone exchange switchboard type thing would allow them to basically disconnect one line and reconnect it to another. So you could connect any sorts of phones as long as they had lines running to the central switchboard. Okay. So instead of you and I having a line running between us and me and Josh having a line running between me and him and so on and so forth, it would be a central switchboard with all of us having lines that ran to it? Yes. So we would each have, like our phone lines would run to this central telephone exchange and then an operator there would be able to unplug your line, connect it to my line, and then you and I could talk or he could disconnect you and replug you to josh another friend of ours and you'd be able to talk to him instead that way you you wouldn't have to have a line that goes to me and a line that goes to josh and josh would have to line to go to you and line to go to me or vice versa like it would just be each one line going to the center place and then someone who could connect and reconnect them and because telephones weren't super ubiquitous at that point rather than having to dial a phone number when you picked up a phone you would just call directly to the central switchboard and then there would be that operator there who would connect you to the person you would just give their name Mm -hmm. and then they would be able to plug and replug the line to connect you to the right person yeah and that's where your uh, social situation would be improved by not needing to know their phone number (laughs) you would just get their name and then they could connect you to the right person yeah that's true that would have made it a little bit easier i suppose (laughs) less awkward i've been i mean i've been thinking about phones and just as researching for this episode how different they are today versus what they used to be because Obviously, like, we are so reliant on our cell phones now. I think you can attest to this if you want to share a recent experience of yours. Yeah, I I got the pleasure of driving back from Los Angeles International Airport to Portland uh, without a phone because my phone broke (laughs) in in the airport. And also, I had three delayed and or canceled flights. So I ended up making the decision to drive back and halfway up California realized that it was probably pretty dumb because I had no telephone and (laughs) no way to like navigate. The only reason I knew how to get back because because the same highway runs through L.A. And the rental car guy was able to give me brief directions to get to I-5. But there were multiple points where I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like at 2 or 3 a.m. there was a tire chain (laughs) checkpoint right before you go into the mountains, which makes sense. Like they're checking to make sure people have the right gear so that they don't get stuck up there. But I was like, Oh my God, if they turn, like, I hope this car is all wheel drive and a, I hope it's all wheel drive and B, I hope they will let me go through with an all wheel drive car without chains. Cause I didn't have any chains and there was nothing open. 
So I was like, the best, like, if they turn me around, I'm just going to have to sit here and, like, wait, I guess, for the morning <laughs> and something to open up. But luckily, the guy was like, okay, all-wheel drive, you can go. I was like, thank God. <laughs> but yeah, when you're, we're very reliant on our phones. And when you don't have them, you're, you kind of go into panic mode because all of these solutions or approaches to problems that we have based on our access to technology kind of go out the window. Yeah, I, it's it's interesting and a little scary how reliant we are on our phones today. And like, obviously, our phones today are not any like phones that we're going to talk about in this episode because they're not phones, really. We just call them that. They're computers. Right. Um, but even just thinking about over the course of history, like I've been watching a lot of Seinfeld on Netflix right now, <laughs> and it's funny to see the challenges that they faced in the 90s just on the fact that they didn't have cell phones and like yeah. how important just their home phone was to them because you could like that that was how they communicated to people but if you weren't home or didn't know someone's number that like <laughs> it was hard to get in touch with people when you needed to yeah and then going all the way back like a hundred years prior when the phones were really first invented and starting to be put into people's homes like very few people actually had them and the actual operation of them was a lot more well, it's probably more intricate now, but it wasn't as smooth. Like you had to rely on these lines and these cables and people there to switch them out and to, to operate the switchboards. So the first telephone operators, the people who actually, you know, disconnected and reconnected these lines were actually teenage boys who were hired beginning in January 1878. But these boys could be unruly, noisy, rude, and profane and would even pull practical jokes and have wrestling matches while on the job. Oh my god. They sound like the Lost Boys from Peter Pan. Like, just a bunch of <laughs> rambunctious teenagers. How young would they hire? Um, I mean, I would imagine that they were probably pretty young because, you know, child labor standards weren't really a thing in the yeah. 1870s, late 1870s, 1880s. So they probably, if I had to guess, would be like, maybe even pre-teen to early teens, like, 13, 14, but I didn't actually like read specific numbers on that. It, I mean, it's viewed as like, it was a job. It wasn't a, it didn't require a ton of skills. You could be trained in it pretty easily, but then you right. get this issue of immature boys causing problems on the job. <laughs> so it was suggested to Alexander Graham Bell that he hire women instead of the teenage boys, thinking that they would be more attentive to their duties and polite to the telephone customers. And we don't really think of people as like telephone customers at the mm -hmm. time, but the way that telephone companies operated at the time was if you had a phone, like if you were wealthy enough, I guess, to afford to have a phone in your house, you paid a subscription fee to the telephone company and that would service anything resulting from, like you would get your phone from them, but if you had any issues, they would service the line or the actual phone itself. But that also allowed you to call the switchboard operation center that would then connect and reconnect the lines when you needed them to. Yeah. So Bell hired a woman named Emma Nutt on September 1st, 1878 for his Bell Telephone Company, which was located in Boston, and then he hired her sister Stella a few hours later. These were the first two women hired as switchboard operators. And they were patient and polite women, but they had to stand 10 hours a day on their job. They were paid $10 a month. $10 a month? <laughs> yeah. Was... Well, think about $1878, but... Obviously, yeah. that's a pretty low wage. <laughs> but, it, I mean, they must have been good at it and must have enjoyed it to some extent. Emma actually held this job for 30 years. Oh, wow. 
And as the number of telephones in the U.S. increased, so did the demand for operators. In 1910, there were 88,000 female telephone operators in the United States. By 1920, there were 178,000. And by 1930, the number had increased to 235,000. And these are just female telephone operators. These were highly stressful jobs. The women were expected to connect calls quickly and correctly, each of them managing dozens of lines at a time. They worked long hours for fairly low pay and had to adhere to strict dress codes, those being long black dresses and no jewelry. <laughs> Why was this the chosen uniform for a tele- telephone operator? Uh, I mean, I think it has to do with a, an air of professionalism mm. because these women were dealing with certain clients. There's also, I'm sure, some levels of sexism for the time period. This was yeah. the turn of the 20th century, so, you know... Women in the workplace had to look a certain way. (laughs) But I also thought it was funny that some of these operators actually wore roller skates with their uniform, which helped them to move around the control room more quickly. (laughs) It's funny to imagine them in like these very restrictive dresses, but then also wearing roller skates and like skating around (laughs) the room. How big were the rooms? Do you know? I don't know specifics, but I have to imagine they were pretty big. I mean, these these control centers would have been located in larger cities, like urban areas that had a lot of telephone customers. Yeah. Typically probably in wealthier areas because those would be the people that had phones and they had to be relatively close to connect the lines all to one place. They also, and I don't know if this is in my notes later on or not, but these control centers would be spread out throughout the country. So if you had to make a long distance call so something that wasn't basically within the same city you would connect to the control center who would then connect you to a line to a different control center so say you were in boston Uh, and you were trying to call someone in i don't know charlotte what's another big city that would have been kind of farther away but maybe had phones at the time somewhere in the south you would connect to a call center in boston who would then connect you to a call center somewhere in the middle, probably, who then connects you to a, a call center somewhere in the south, and then they would connect you to whatever the local line was there. So long-distance wow. calls actually went through a, a couple of different control centers, which was a whole ordeal, but it allowed these phones to be more connected to each other outside of just their local region. Gotcha. It's crazy how far we've come. Yeah, I mean, I have to imagine that, like, I don't know how phones work today, but they probably do work on sort of a similar level. It's just instead of using these lines and cables were using like satellites and right i don't know (laughs) stuff that's way above my comprehension level (laughs) right i actually thought of it a little bit like airports too like you have regional airports and then you have these bigger airports that i mean your flight pattern that you mentioned was going to go from vegas to los angeles to portland so there may have been if we're talking about phones instead there may have been a direct line from vegas to portland but right if there wasn't, then you would have had to call the call center in Los Angeles who would then call the call center in Portland for you. Hmm. Not that, I don't know if those cities were super established in 1878, but just to give an example of how they worked. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they were. I feel like that Portland was Portland too? Oh, I don't know gosh. when Portland was. Portland came along with like the Oregon Trail and the logging industry, which I think was pretty early. I don't know exactly when, but I want to say it was like early, early to mid 1800s. I guess Vegas probably would have been the newest of the three cities, right? Oh, Vegas? I don't know. The Ve- Vegas was connected to the California Gold Rush. Not that it matters. It's not really. <laughs> oh, important. I'm gonna I'm gonna find out. 
where are you? Founded. So Vegas. Oh, yeah, you're right. Vegas was founded in 1905. This is relatively recent. Yeah. So, all right. So that's not a good example for telephones, but I just, when I was thinking about how they work, it reminded me a lot of like airports and having regional airports sure. and then the kind of the big city airports as well. Yeah. So getting back to the women, <laughs> they also, while working, were not allowed to talk other than to their telephone customers, but they couldn't socialize amongst the other operators, the other women they worked with. Was this like to keep them focused or keep them from getting distracted? Or was it just another like mindless, yeah, sexist rule? I, I'm sure it's both. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's to to keep them focused on their work because they had issues with the teenage boys who clearly were oh. not. But I think it was, again, going with this air of professionalism when someone, when a customer called the control center, they simply answered the phone, connected them to who they were supposed to, and they were done. So mm-hmm. it wasn't like they weren't chatting with the customers and they weren't distracted by their other operators that they were with. There was also this unwritten rule that existed that supposedly did not allow the women to be married. And in some like circumstances, they actually mentioned of women who got fired after they did get married. So I don't know how that oh. connects at all. Maybe just the idea that like once they're married, they should be working in the home. I don't know. That doesn't sound great, but that was something I came across. Interesting. Yeah. What a weird rule. Right. Regardless, being a telephone operator was viewed as an important and respectable job for women at the time when not many jobs were available to women outside of the home. Yeah, it seems like that kind of acted as like a transition into working life for women in other industries. It certainly was a stepping stone. I mean, this is one of the first jobs that really women could, I guess, work for like a, an actual company. Like, the, these telephone companies were, they were new, but they were huge and very important to the future of society, as we can see today. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, you didn't have a ton of women that actually were in the the workforce as we would consider it at the time. So, it, it was like a way for women to not just be the caretaker or the stay-at-home wife or anything like that. Or, you know, some of the other jobs that we've talked about women at this time period, like working in laundry or child care, things like that. Like this was an actual job that you got up and went to work. And that was fairly new for women in United States history. Yeah. So these women telephone operators are going to be a key part to today's story. We're going to talk about one of the more important groups of female telephone operators. But first, we're going to take a quick break and then we will be right back. Look, if you've made it this far, we know you already love History's B-Side. But seriously, we just wanted to take a minute to tell you some ways you can support the podcast on our website, historiesbside.com. The first and most direct way you can support our podcast is by signing up for a membership. You can join at any monthly contribution level, but we suggest $10 to start. Though, please feel free to pick whatever fits into your budget. A membership will get you access to monthly bonus episodes, show notes, future episode cues, surprise gifts, and more. We also have on there our merch shop, which includes things like t-shirts, hoodies, hats, drinkware, bags, stuff for adults, kids, and dogs, so you can rep your favorite history podcast everywhere you go. You'll also find extras, including free stickers, bookmarks, and postcards. You can suggest an episode topic, 
or submit a question about the podcast, one of our episodes, or even about us. That website again is historiesbside.com. And now, back to the episode. All right, welcome back. As we're talking about the growth of telephones, at least the industry of telephones and how they were operated at the same time that they were starting to become more popular, more ubiquitous, and in a lot of homes, something else big was happening in American history. And that, well, not just American history, but around the world. And that was the outbreak of World War I. As we know, on April 2nd, 1917, President Woodrow Wilson petitioned Congress to make a declaration of war on Germany and enter World War I. On April 4th, the Senate voted in approval, and two days later the House also approved, officially entering the United States into the war. And while men were being sent off to join the war effort, women stepped up to take over the traditional men's work on the home front. Contrary to the general idea that a woman's place was in the home, many American women began to take on roles in factories, munitions plants, and agricultural fields. Written publications tried to emphasize women's importance in this war effort, while also reporting their resistance to becoming masculinized, despite taking on (laughs) men's work. What does that mean? I think just the idea that them working and going to work would make them look more manly, or seem Hmm. more manly. You know, we like our women soft and pretty and at home and not having to do work all day. That's what men are for. (laughs) I think it was just another, you know, typical old school sexist idea from the time period. Yeah. The Women's Journal wrote at the time, quote, All over America today, suffragists are leading a back to the land movement. They have put their hand to the plow and are not turning back. Hmm. So it's important to note that all this was taking place as the women's suffrage movement was beginning to pick up steam, which we've talked about on a few episodes of our podcast here. Yeah. In addition to this, 8 million women volunteered with the American Red Cross to provide equipment, medical aid, and entertainment to soldiers. Their motor service provided transportation to canteens, hospitals, and camps, and they also served as motorcycle messengers and were trained as auto mechanics. That's badass. <laughs> The Salvation Army had a group of women called Lassies, which provided food to soldiers as well as letter writing and clothes mending services. And even librarians stepped up, including over 1,100 women who distributed almost 10 million books and periodicals and established 36 camp libraries for military units. But of all these, the biggest step for women's role in the war effort was when they were finally recruited for a position within the military. Hmm. And that group of women is who we're here to talk about today. Soon after the U.S. entered World War I, they discovered communication was a problem. At the start of the war, the U.S. Army's Signal Corps had only 11 officers, 10 men at their Washington office, and 1,570 men stationed around the country. They were short on operators, particularly bilingual ones, to aid the units stationed in France. By September of 1917, Army camp commanders began to petition the U.S. government to build barracks for women who could be telephone operators in charge of communications. Initially, these requests were denied because Army regulations dictated that other than nurses and hospitals, only men could serve in the Army. Those darn regulations. (laughs) Yeah, right? (laughs) Rules cannot be broken. 
or changed. After being persuaded by the Signal Corps and the American Telephone and Telegraph Company, better known today as AT&T, the Army relented and allowed the recruitment of female operators. I feel like that's very typical for America, is that a big company stepped in and (laughs) forced policy change. Good old corporate America. Big phone, as we call it today. (laughs) Initially, they allowed the recruitment of female operators only when men were not available. The women had to be unmarried. So, I mean, I noticed this is the second time you've mentioned that they needed to be unmarried. What what made this condition so important? It actually, I guess, has a little bit of reason for the, the military purpose. I don't fully understand why the other telephone, like the domestic telephone operators had to be unmarried. But in the military, they were worried about women whose husbands were also in the military. Um, Number one, Mm. because then they weren't at home on the war front, but also because they thought it would be a distraction for a woman to be overseas with her husband. Uh, So I don't, yeah, not to say that like married couples can't serve just as well as unmarried people, but I guess that was their thinking at the time for why they wanted unmarried military telephone operators. Yeah. They also wanted these recruits to be bilingual, obviously because they were serving mostly in France, but around Europe that they'd have to be able to speak the the local languages. And they specified that the women had to be, quote, of mature age and high moral character. (laughs) But also these women would be under constant supervision. Gotta micromanage. (laughs) Of course. On November 8th, 1917, General John Pershing, which if you aren't familiar with you know, World War One military history. He's an important guy, but we also mentioned him on the Sergeant Stubby episode because he awarded him with some kind of medal. <laughs> yeah. Um, General Pershing sent out a communique requesting the recruitment of these women. The request said, on account of the great difficulty of obtaining properly qualified men, request organization and dispatch to France a force of women telephone operators all speaking French and English equally well. Hmm. These women would be trained at various army camps across the U.S. The focus was specifically on women who were fluent in both French and English. So most of the women who would eventually fill these positions had at least one foreign-born parent, and many had prior experience working in telecommunications. AT&T offered to train the women in switchboard operations if they did not already have the experience. Pershing originally planned to recruit three chief operators, nine supervising operators, 78 local and long-distance operators, and 10 substitutes, which made for a total of 100 women. Mm -hmm. He also would recruit one man, a commissioned captain, to supervise the entire group. By the first week of December, over 7,600 women had written to the Signal Corps to inquire about these first 100 positions. (laughs) Jeez. They ended up accepting 223 women into the new program. The women began to train at various military bases around the U.S., but then completed their training at Camp Franklin in Maryland. By March of 1918, the first 33 of these women were shipped off to Europe to begin coordinating the communications of the American Expeditionary Forces in Paris, Chaumont, and other French locations, as well as London, Southampton, and Winchester in England. Aside from being much more skilled and efficient in telephone operations than their male counterparts, these women's voices were a welcome sound for the soldiers using the Signal Corps telephone system. As soldiers attempted to contact other units or commands through this system, they were greeted by one of the friendly operators saying, Hello. 
and this is why these women became affectionately nicknamed the Hello Girls. Oh. Uh, is this is this why we say hello on the phone now? It might be. I didn't I should have looked that up for this episode because I think that's really interesting. I wonder if it just stems from the fact that you know, originally when people made telephone calls, the first word that they would hear from the telephone operators was hello. Yeah. The first group of hello girls was led by chief operator Grace D. Banker. And for this episode, we're not really focusing on one specific person as our main topic. We're really talking about the group of Hello Girls. But Grace Banker was actually pretty important to the Hello Girls, so I want to give a little bit on her background too. So I guess she'll kind of serve as today's B-sider. Okay. Grace Derby Banker was born on October 25th, 1892 in Passaic, New Jersey. Probably should have looked up how that town is pronounced, but whatever. (laughs) Her parents believed education was important. So she attended Barnard College, which was a private women's college with degrees in French and history. Upon graduation, she became a telephone operator for AT&T. And this was one of the few jobs offered to women at the time, like we said. She was very good at this job and was quickly promoted to the role of switchboard instructor. In December 1917, she came across the ad put out by the U.S. Army seeking bilingual women with experience operating telephone switchboards. Hmm. Of course, that was her. She had a degree in French and also served as a switchboard instructor. Yeah. Also, her brother Eugene was already serving in the army in Europe, so Grace took this opportunity to also contribute to her country's war effort. She was selected for the Signal Corps Female Telephone Operators Unit, began her training, and soon set sail for General Pershing's headquarters in Chaumont, France. In her diary... She wrote that she, quote, watched the Statue of Liberty fade from sight. For the first time, I suddenly realized what a responsibility I have on my young shoulders. Hmm. After five months in Chaumont, she transferred to Ligny and Beauvoir. Here she served as the chief operator of the female telephone operators unit. She assisted with the American assault on St. Mihiel, which was under German control at the time, by sending, decoding, and intercepting messages. And... I, re- I came across a quote that I just realized I forgot to put in my outline here. These women weren't just speaking English and French and being bilingual. They they spoke in code. The messages that they relayed were in code. So they had certain words that referred to different French cities and different areas or anything that they were communicating. Most yeah. of it was in code. And these codes changed frequently, like almost every week. So really, these women are super intelligent to be able to know all this and be able to keep information current and relay it quickly and effectively so that these messages weren't being intercepted. Right. But not only that, in these different assaults, they were literally operating from the trenches. They were under aerial attacks at times. And like their lives were literally in danger. They were essentially working on the front lines. Yeah. That's crazy. I can't imagine doing any job there, but like having to do this job where you have to be highly focused and translate different languages while in a war zone would be (laughs) pretty difficult especially for being the first women to like serve in these types of positions the women were actually equipped with helmets and gas masks due to their proximity to the battle lines Mm. grace banker would later aid in the muse argonne offensive which is a callback to sergeant stubby he was also serving in that offensive and i just think it's funny that like Obviously, these are our two biggest World War One B-siders that we've talked about. Yeah. And their paths may have crossed. I didn't find anything that like specifically mentioned it, of course, but it's interesting right. to think that they might have been in similar places. 
This Meuse-Argonne offensive was a series of battles which ultimately led to the Allied victory of the war. Following the armistice on November 11, 1918, she transferred to Paris where she worked at President Wilson's residence. Again, somewhere that Sergeant Stubby would have yeah, this <laughs> intercepted her path. This episode in particular has a lot of callbacks. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Stubby, Wilson, Jack Phillips. Later, Banker would join the Army Occupation of Koblenz, Germany, and here she received the Distinguished Service Award. Her commendation read, For exceptional ability and untiring devotion to her exacting duties under trying conditions, to assure the success of the telephone service during the operations of the First Army against the St. Mihail Salient and the exhortations of the North of Verdun. Only 18 Signal Corps members received this same honor, the Distinguished Service Award. And I didn't find anything that specifically said this, but I have to assume that these were some of the first women to ever receive this type of honor. Yeah, I tried to look it up, but I couldn't find any information either. I mean, these were really officially the first women to serve in the U.S. military. Well, not the U.S. military, but to serve in the U.S. Army. The Navy did have women serving in different positions, but... These women specifically are noted as the first like official capacity with the U.S. Army. We've talked, of course, about women serving in the Revolutionary War, but even then they weren't technically serving for the Army or any right. kind of official capacity. Banker was discharged in September 1920 after 20 months of service. Upon her return, she married Eugene Paddock and spent the rest of her life raising their four children. She died of cancer on December 17, 1960, but she said of her time with the Hello Girls that our work made me a bigger person than I ever was before. Hmm. So let's talk a little bit more about the Hello Girls. This first group of female telephone operators departed for Europe in March of 1918. By September the same year, General Pershing determined the need for 130 additional operators and then 40 more every six weeks through 1919. Wow. So clearly they were effective if they needed so many continuously joining. Yeah. I mean, communications were extremely important to the war effort, specifically on the battle lines like we talked about. And I read in one of these articles that these women could actually manage like five time, five lines for every one line that a male operator could handle. And I don't know, like, Maybe that's a commentary on men being kind of dumb or lazy or just the fact that they weren't trained in this. Like women had been handling the telephone lines at home. So yeah, obviously you pull from people who have experience doing it. And I think that's a big part of like what a glaring error by the military to not be doing that already, just entirely yeah. based on the fact that they didn't want women serving. <laughs> right. The War Department reached out to the YWCA, who helped coordinate housing and transportation for the new female recruits. Each of these operators would be in charge of managing 50 phone lines while they were working on the front lines. Wow. That's so many. I don't know how I'd focus on that much stuff at one time. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to keep track of it. <laughs> I think I'd have a hard time keeping track of five lines, but I guess that's exactly what we just said about Right. Commentary on men not being very good at these types of jobs. And that's more a comment on men, you know, I don't know, not knowing what they're doing. Yeah. In total, 450 women were selected for this program, though it seems unlikely all of them would have actually served in Europe. Where else would they have been stationed during this war? Um, I mean, they still had people serving domestically for the mm -hmm. military specifically. 
But sure. the number that I came across a lot was that 233 women that actually served in the program. So I, my guess, and this wasn't clearly outlined in what I read for this, but my guess is those 233 women were the ones who actually served in Europe for the Hello Girls. Okay. But they, they probably had some women serving at home as well as women who were selected but never actually served for the Army in this capacity. Two days after the armistice, the chief signal officer for the 1st Army stated in his official report, quote, a large part of the success of the communications of this army is due to a competent staff of women operators. Clearly, they were important to the success yeah. of the army in World War I. After the war, there was always debate as to whether these women were classified as soldiers or even members of the U.S. Army. Although the women underwent army training, wore army uniforms, and swore an oath to abide by army regulations, senior officers sought to only classify them as, quote, civilian employees. An internal army memo claimed that the women were authorized by contract and not by army regulations. Yet, no such contracts ever existed. Telephone companies recruiting the women claimed that the girl telephone operators would be regular army, and letters sent to their recruits stated, this will be the only unit composed of women which will actually wear army insignia. And even press at the time referred to them as, quote, young women soldiers. Hmm. This confusion became a problem when the war ended, and the women were denied honorable discharge papers. These discharge papers were only awarded to soldiers and not civilian employees, and it made the women ineligible for war bonuses, military pensions, and other benefits. Over the years, persistent efforts were made to give these women their veteran status, which was led by one of the former operators, a woman named Merle Egan Anderson. Between 1924 and 1977, at least 24 bills were introduced before Congress attempting to give these women their credit. These bills were often buried in congressional committees and ultimately unsuccessful, which Typical. seems like a commentary on our Congress even today. In 1976, a Seattle lawyer named Mark Howe teamed up with Anderson to again push for military recognition of the Hello Girls. Howe worked with several members of Congress to reintroduce these bills for the women's veteran status. And finally, a bill was passed and signed into law by President Jimmy Carter on the 60th anniversary of the World War I armistice in November of 1979. Jeez. Only 70 of the women who served with this group were still alive. Grace Banker, the one that we mentioned earlier, obviously passed away before the Hello Girls received any of their due credit. Yeah. But 18 of the women from the original 33 who first served in Europe were still alive at this time. And an army general visited each of the surviving Hello Girls at her home to present her with an honorable discharge. Hmm. Finally, the women received their credit. <laughs> Finally, 70 years later, after over half of them were gone. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, it. I think this was a really interesting topic because... These women were clearly important to the war effort, and they were notable right. for being the the first women to really serve in the army. And then even the army didn't give them credit for their significance. Right. Yeah, it's bonkers <laughs> how long it took to give them credit, even even while admitting like the need for them and the service that they provided during the war. Like, you think it would have been a little easier to just give them credit? Yeah, I mean, clearly the male operators that were there before weren't cutting it. <laughs> yeah. They wouldn't have recruited women in the first place. And you know how difficult it can be when you don't have 
proper communication trying to get through a difficult situation. Uh, yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> and all I was was driving up the middle of California. I wasn't trying to go to battle and <laughs> find aerial assault. Yeah. So is it safe to assume we think the Hello Girls are good people? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think we have anything negative to say about them. I think, I mean, they're kind of like, uh, like Stubby was a good story. That's the one we're kind of drawing this comparison to just because it was the time period. But Stubby was a good story, but I don't know how much we like yeah. would consider him an actual war hero, even though we kind of did in that episode. But like these women, I mean, I don't know how you define war hero, but like they were clearly very important to this, the success of the U.S. Army during right. World War One, And, you know, yeah. like we kind of just said, without proper communications, who knows how that would have been different for like just the success of the army and what they were able to accomplish. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think they're yeah. clearly very important to history. They're very important to the future of women, women in the workforce, women in the military and, you know, our country's changing attitudes toward women equality at this time period. I think it showed that women could serve in the same way that men could, that they were equally tough and strong and able to be effective. They weren't just, home caretakers you know like i think by burying this story we aren't giving women the credit that they deserve especially these women the credit they deserve but generations to come after as well yeah so do you think you're well prepared for your quiz today uh what did you ask me about last with stubby was it world war one stuff (laughs) or is this gonna be history of telephones it's a couple different things. There's, I think, one of each. There's one about the Hello Girls, there's one about telephones, and there's one about World War One. <laughs> Great. All right. Let's get into it. All right. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back. As many of you know, we like to end each episode with a short three-question quiz for our host to test out his knowledge and research acumen, and also to give our listeners a chance to test their own knowledge. How do you feel about your quiz today, Phil? How do I feel about my research acumen? (laughs) Probably not great. (laughs) (laughs) You mean you are not a research wizard by now? You'd think that we would be, right? Like, that is the longest most difficult part of each episode is putting together the outline because i I don't know like this was a interesting topic thank you catherine for recommending it because i thought i thought it was cool uh and definitely a a interesting part of american military history but also every article i found about them was like two or three paragraphs tops (laughs) so it was hard to like parse it all together and most of them were basically the same information over and over so tried to find a little bit more than maybe you'd find in a typical article when you Google Hello Girls. Yeah, it was actually kind of hard to find direct questions. I have one question that's sort of adjacent to the Hello Girls. I mean, it's about them, but <laughs> you don't really... One question that's sort of adjacent to them. <laughs> <laughs> and then I have... Two others that have nothing two to do with the topic. Questions. <laughs> <laughs> they have something to do with the topic. They're telephone questions. Um I only very briefly read on telephone history. I mean, they were things you mentioned in the episode. So I feel like, and I think the one I think we've talked about before, 
maybe on the Titanic episode, and I can't remember for sure, but I'm going to include it, and if it, you know, sounds familiar to you, let me know. Long-form wave refraction in the stratosphere or something like that? (laughs) No, that is not it, but good memory. (laughs) Something like that. I don't think that was the right words. So for your first question, this question was going to be what other telephone companies existed alongside with the American Telephone and Telegraph Company, but apparently they were it. (laughs) Yeah, so I've actually, this is funny because I listened to a podcast fairly recently about history of telephones and like Bell Telephone Company, which had a bunch of different names over time, basically sold and merged with AT&T and like monopolized the entire telephone industry. (laughs) It was a really, really, I don't know, really bad antitrust issue. Yeah. Then you might actually be in good shape for this question because my question is, (laughs) what year was AT&T broken up by the U.S. Department of Justice? Oh, no. I don't know the year, but I know about the breakup because they like they sold off all the regional telephone companies like they turned into regional telephone companies so like someone would handle all around one big city and then an area around it and then uh they still like sort of partially owned them so it wasn't like really breaking <laughs> them up and then yeah. whatever they bought into ended up not being as lucrative as they thought and they started to like rebuy up some of the regional ones later on anyway I do not know the answer to your question. <laughs> it was 1984, That's which surprised it? me. Wow. I thought it would be way earlier. Right? <laughs> I mean, it was like eight years before we were born. There was still like a huge monopoly, <laughs> right. giant glaring monopoly. For your second question, and I couldn't not ask this because it's too funny to think about and also just an interesting story, I suppose. So we mentioned that the Hello Girls are called the Hello Girls because that is the greeting they used when picking up the phone. But the other alternative greeting is, I think, a little bit more whimsical and fun. Can you name that other alternative greeting that was proposed and who proposed it for bonus points? Mm, I think I did actually read this. I don't remember what it was. Because they say different stuff in other countries, too. Like, Mm -hmm but it's typically not just their version of hello. I don't I don't know what it was though. The word was ahoy. <laughs> and I don't know why I remember you and I talking about this, but I just I take a lot of pleasure imagining the world today if that that became true. And then we all picked up our phones and said ahoy. <laughs> I'm just going to start doing that. It's like the captain now I met your mother. <laughs> yeah. If we ever have like a phone number for people to call into history's b-side that's how we'll greet them we'll say ahoy ahoy (laughs) so to expand on that a little bit the oxford english dictionary says the first published use of hello goes back only to 1827 and it wasn't mainly a greeting back then it was actually used to attract attention like when you're yelling at somebody like hey hello (laughs) what do you think you're well yeah we do i just find it funny that it had this more like aggressive usage Anyway, uh, Thomas Edison was the one who suggested using that for the telephone, but his rival, Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor of the telephone, was the one who thought it would be better to use Ahoy. In fact, he did use it for the rest of his life. 
Wait, so Bell used Ahoy? Bell used Ahoy, Edison suggested hello, and Alexander Graham Bell refused to not use Ahoy for the rest of his life. I don't know enough about Alexander Graham Bell other than the fact that he invented the telephone, but like, I get the sense that he's just very pretentious. <laughs> that anyone Ahoy. that would use Ahoy would probably come off as very pretentious. <laughs> yeah. And for your third and final question, we talked about how many of the Hello Girls that were recruited had to speak both French and English and be fluent in both. Can you name the two North American French cultural groups that many of the Hello Girls came from? North American French cultural groups? I I should say French American, I suppose, is a more streamlined way to say that. Like, I know it wouldn't have been Canadian, but is Canadian one of them? Like French, French Canada? Yeah. yeah. Um, where else would France have been? Would it be like Florida? Close, but it's not Florida. So the Caribbean somewhere? Mm-mm. We've been there. You and I have been there? Oh, mm-hmm. like Louisiana or yeah. New Orleans. Oh, okay. Creole and Cajun. That makes sense. <laughs> I was thinking like that's still part of New France as we talked about on our last yeah, episode. Yeah, that was a hard that was a hard question to word and to to understand it first. <laughs> but well, that makes sense. That's mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. Came from the north and the south. <laughs> well, thanks again to Catherine for suggesting this topic. Like we said at the beginning, if you're listening to this and you know of any lesser-known people from history or groups of people um, that kind of shaped the world into what we know today that maybe just haven't had their stories told, please feel free to write to us, historiesbside at gmail.com, or reach out to us on one of our social media channels at historiesbside on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Or, you know, we're not that hard to get a hold of, so <laughs> you can find us <laughs> no, we're not. any way that you'd like, and even one of our personal social medias. And we're happy to you know, research it more and try to present an episode like this. You don't need, really need to know the whole backstory on it. Just give us a name and or a group of people and we'll try to do it for you. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll uh, be back next week with more History's B-Side. History's B-Side is an independent, listener-supported podcast. Leave us a review or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting service. And follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at History's B-Side. Send us your feedback or inquire about sponsorship and advertising opportunities by emailing us at podcast at historiesbside.com. You can support the show by becoming a member or making a one-time contribution at historiesbside.com. While you're there, check out our merch shop, extras, and more. This episode was researched and produced by your hosts, Matt Melito and Philip Hall. Thanks for listening to History's B-Side.